Welcome back to the Project 33 podcast. Uh, this is going to be our highlights from the month of October, uh, our biggest insights and kind of what we shared on, on LinkedIn. In today's episode, we're going to talk about how to post on LinkedIn. We're going to talk about the problem with selling to multiple decision makers in B2B and how, how to overcome or at least mitigate these problems. We'll talk about how to serve the B2B side for any marketplace or B2C company because every B2C company has a B2B side to their business, even though they might not realize it. We'll talk about the seven hour rule about how to leverage your network on LinkedIn. And we'll talk about how you can create videos that help you prove the value of your offer. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Uh, if you have any comments, any feedback, please let us know. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn and I hope you enjoy. Chapter one. How to post on LinkedIn. How to post on LinkedIn. It's pretty easy. You just open the LinkedIn app, you write a post, you click publish. Now you post it on LinkedIn. But I think that's not the question that people actually mean when they ask how to post on LinkedIn. Um, it's how to get started on LinkedIn. How to get started on posting on LinkedIn. What should I post? And so you can post three different types of posts. A pure text post, a text post with an image attached to it, and a text post with a video attached to it. Um, you can also just post a video without any text posts attached to it. Um, which one should you go for? Go for the one that comes easiest to you. Maybe you already have a video that you recorded on your phone, then just post that. For most people, it's a text post because they don't need to, you know, sit down and set up a camera and talk into a camera. So text post is probably the easiest thing, um, you can go for. Character limit is 3000 characters. So that's the longest you can write, but you can write much shorter. You know, it can be a sentence or two sentences, make it as short as possible while still, you know, saying something, you know, and just write about something that you're interested in. I think that's the main thing. You know, people overthink this, you know, oh, what should I talk about? What would people be interested in? If you're interested in it, chances are you're not the only person in the world being interested in this thing. Chances are there are other people interested in something similar or the same thing. Instead of trying to guess what the world or what your friends or what your network might be interested in, just pick something you're interested in. You know, maybe write about a podcast you listened to recently and what you learned. Maybe talk about a book you recently read and, you know, what your takeaways are. Maybe talk about a person you recently met that inspired you. Maybe talk about an insight or lesson that you recently learned through going through life, maybe your business or your college or something, you know, maybe talk about, you know, a new hobby that you're trying out, you know, why you're trying it out. Talk about what you're interested in, because then you can project it into the world. You have something to say, obviously, because you're interested in it. And chances are other people will be interested in it too. Write like you talk. Don't try to, you know, strategize about, you know, how you use your words and sound fancy and, you know, use intelligent sounding words that you otherwise wouldn't use. Just write how you talk, read it out loud. That's how you can confirm is once you wrote your post about the thing that you're interested in, read it out loud. And then you'll hear whether it sounds kind of awkward and weird and, you know, whether you're trying to sound more intelligent than you are or whether it sounds like you would actually say something and that's it. Now you wrote a LinkedIn post and keep doing that. Just write about the things that you're interested in. You know, maybe those things are LinkedIn, maybe those things are content, maybe those things are websites, maybe it's NFTs and Web3 and crypto, you know, there are things that you're interested in. Um, and that's how you post to LinkedIn. 
Chapter 2, My Vision for the Book Club The picture that I have in my head about what the book club should eventually become is the, the digital equivalent of a country club. You know, like a house where, you know, you, you can show up at any time. You can walk in, you can come in the morning, you can come in the afternoon, you can come in the evening. Uh, when you walk in, there's usually people you know, familiar faces, people you have a history with. Um, sometimes there's new faces too. And, uh, you know, there's people hanging out. Some are involved in an interesting deep discussion over there. Some others are hanging out over there, playing some poker. And you can just walk in and join that group or join that group or just sit on your own over there and read a book. And that's what I want to build with the book club, just the digital version. I wanted to get to the point where you can open up the book club on your phone at any point. And whenever you open it up, Chances are high that there's right now three people over here having like a discussion about some book or idea. And then over here, there's some other people hanging out and having a casual conversation. And then over here, there's some other people, you know, maybe playing some poker or playing some chess or something. And you can show up and you can join in and you can join that conversation or that conversation. And they'll, you know, they know your name and you know their name. And, you know, you can hang out for five minutes you can just listen in or you can hang out for three hours and, and spend your evening there. And I want it to be the replacement for Instagram in a sense. You know, when, you, when you're a little tired, when you're a little bored, when you don't really have anything to do, you open your Instagram app or one of the other apps and you kind of scroll a little. That's what I want the, the, the book club to become, the Discord to become. When you're in that mode, when you're a little tired, when you're a little bored, when you don't really have anything to do, you open up the book club and chances are there's right now three people in conversation or there's some threat happening about some interesting cultural topic, people debating, talking about a new book that they read, some interesting ideas that they learned about, um, and you can join in. So it's both a combination of you know discussions and debates and philosophical conversations, but it's also community. Like I don't want it to be a debate club where people just show up once a week at this preset time, Friday evenings, and then for two hours, they debate one topic and then they go home. But I want it to become a place where, you know, you build friendships, you meet new people, and you maybe take it offline at some point. We actually have right now two people in our book club who met in the book club and are now uh, running their own company together. Um, they built the MVP, they're now raising money. Um, and, they, and they met in the book club. And that's what I wanted to become, right? It's it's more than just debates and, and interesting conversations. It's a community. You build friends. You get to know each other. You catch up on each other's lives, right? You check in with people, making sure that they're okay, how the family is, all that stuff. So it's both. Um, so you can feel at home. It's cozy, right? It should feel cozy. It shouldn't feel like this you know, purely intellectual thing. And you can only show up when you're fully, you know, awake and fully on your best game so that you can present all your best arguments. No, you can show up at any time. You can show up when you're in a bad mood. You can show up when you're in, good, in a good mood. You can show up for five minutes. You can show up for five hours. You can show up in the morning. You can show up in the evening and have that sense of belonging, but intellectual challenges. And if we manage to replace Instagram, you know, I think that's powerful because what's better than scrolling mindlessly for an hour, it's to have stimulating conversations about important topics. So we're not there yet. 
I th we're we're right now we are 22 people. I think for this kind of vision that you can just open the app at any point and there's like three people over here having a conversation and two people over here like you need I think quite a few more members because obviously we're also in different time zones. So when someone's morning, it's someone else's uh, evening or night. And I'm still figuring out how to create this type of culture that's not that's decentralized, right? That's not just me in the center organizing everything, you know, setting the agenda, setting the topics, telling everyone to show up at this time on this date, but for everyone to be able to suggest topics and and bring ideas and and suggest, you know, let's meet tomorrow at 3 p.m. And two people say, yeah, let's do it without me organizing everything. So that's what I wanted to become. We're on the way there. Still much to figure out. But uh, but that's the vision. Chapter 3, the story behind our name, Project 33. So what does Project 33 stand for? I think Sven asked that question that someone asked him. Why Project 33? Like, why 33? What, what, what's that number? So I wanted to make a video about it because it's actually quite random. Um, I came up with a name, Project 33, in I think it was December 2018 or January 2019, somewhere around that time. And it was basically, I had kind of just started this thing of creating content and uh, I needed to create a website. We didn't have a website and when you create a website you need a domain and so i was like what's the domain that i'm going to buy for this we don't have a name and so i needed to first come up with a name so that then i could buy a domain and not just call it finn thormeyer's business or something like that that's stupid and i think i was at the time really interested in scooter braun who's the manager of uh justin bieber and i was you know i was kind of reading all this stuff and watching all his videos, went down that rabbit hole. And he had a company called, I think it's called Scooter Braun Projects or something like that, his investment company. And so I liked the project because it just felt kind of plain and simple. Then I thought, okay, project what? And I went kind of through the numbers, 33, and I liked 33. And I ended up on 33 just because I liked the number. Um, it kind of felt, you know, 33 kind of felt a little mysterious and, uh, and I Googled around a little bit and there was like a couple of project 33s already existing, but nothing really big, nothing major. Um, and then I saw that project 33.io, the domain was free. So I was like, okay, project 33, it is sounds kind of cool. Project 32, meh, project 34, meh. 33 is kind of cool. And I liked it because it felt kind of like humble down to earth. It's just, just plain. It's like Project 33, one out of many, you know, that's the kind of vibe that I liked. Um, but then later, you know, you can always post uh, later after the fact, uh, create a narrative. So then after I came up with that name randomly, I found out that one, apparently Jesus was 33 when he died. My wife was 33 when I met her. And I feel like there was some other third weird fact about 33. Um, so that's the name. I just like the sound of it. Uh, doesn't really have a meaning and I still like it. So that's why we're called Project 33 because I needed a name and I needed it fast. Chapter four, 
the problem with selling to multiple decision makers. So if you're selling a complex B2B product, very likely you're selling to multiple decision makers, multiple people who need to get involved and sign up on the deal and all of that. Most of the time, you will not get all of the decision makers all on the same call, either because you don't know who all the decision makers are, they're somewhere hidden, uh, maybe because there's just too many, and maybe it's just, you know, these people are busy and so you might get one of them onto a call, maybe two of them, but you will not get all four all aligned onto the same timeline and have them on the call. And that's a problem, obviously, because you might convince three out of four decision makers, but if one of them doesn't like you, the deal might not get through. And so one way to mitigate that a little bit is to record your sales calls, right? Record your demos and then send it over to the prospect. And that's what we do. Any demo, any discovery call that we do over Zoom, we record it. And then afterwards, I send it over to the prospect and tell them, hey, like you can forward this to your co-founder, to your CFO, to your so-and-so, the person who also needs to get. And then hopefully they do that. You're not sure. So that helps a little bit. But even if that person will forward that recording to all of those decision makers, and even if all of those decision makers actually take the time to, you know, spend the one hour to rewatch the recording of your demo call, even then it only works if the questions that those decision makers have who were not on the call match exactly the questions that the decision makers who were on the call had. Because those are obviously only the, the only questions that you actually answer in the recording. Most of the time, that's not the case, right? Because what this decision maker is interested in, maybe the technical person, is very different than what the implementation person wants to know. And is very different to what the CFO who signs up on the deal wants to know. Um, so the questions go unanswered. And so one solution that, that we do for ourselves, it's not a perfect solution, but it at least helps a little bit is to create an FAQ section, to have a page on your website where you answer all of these questions that usually come up because usually these questions are recurring. They're the same ones over and over again. And you can even break it down by persona and say, you know, here's the, the finance question, here's the technical question, here's the product questions, whatever they are, and just create this FAQ page. We have it with videos. So we have, you know, our most frequently asked questions are, how do you write the copy? Who comes up with the topics? What do the videos look like? How long are they? Right. So for each of these questions that people usually ask us, we have a video that's on our website on an FAQ page that I actively use. So whenever one of those questions pops up in a, in an email and then follow up email, I send them that page and I say, there you go. Here's your answer which is much better than like me writing up a long text in the email. Um, and I explain this fact to the people, to the decision makers who I have on the call. If I know that I'm talking to the co-founder and I know that the other co-founder is not in the call, I show that one, that person on the call, by the way, we have this page, your co-founder will probably have some questions that we didn't answer here, just so we know we have that page here. He can check it out and most of the time, most of his questions will be answered over there. So it's a very powerful way to get a little bit more alignment. Again, it's, it won't be perfect because not everyone will read everything that's on your FAQ page. Some of them will still want it directly from you. That's fine. But even if you can cut down the time by 10% or by 20% over time that accumulates and, and you'll be able to get alignment 
from the different decision makers faster. So talk to your salespeople or the people on the ground actually having the sales conversations and ask them, you know, what are the recurring questions? What are the questions that people always ask you? And then write down the list, this, this, and then you have a list of 10, 15, 20 things, and then create a video for each of them. Put them all into one subpage on your website, and now you have a really useful tool that you and your salespeople can actively use for follow-ups and to, to send to prospects, decision makers who weren't on the call. Chapter 5, How to Serve the B2B Side for Any Marketplace B2C Company. For a lot of B2C companies, there's a B2B aspect behind it. As an example, I, I just talked with um, a company that has a payment app, kind of like PayPal. People can use to buy things at Walmart or Burger King or the supermarket and get bonus points. That's a B2C company, right? They need to generate hundreds of thousands of users who download this app onto their phone and use it in their day-to-day life. But there's a B2B aspect to this business on the back end, right? Because the only way that this app works is that big retailers like Walmart or, you know, chains like Burger King say, yes, we will allow this payment system in our stores so that people can actually use it and pay with their stuff uh, in our locations. And that's not B2C, that's a B2B aspect, right? And that's kind of hidden behind the curtain in a sense. And that means that you need to have very different marketing approaches for both of these sides, right? Because the B2C aspect, you need to generate lots of users at low customer acquisition costs. Right. So you need wide distribution. So what makes sense here is to run Facebook and Instagram ads. That's what most B2C companies run to acquire their users. But you need to make sure that you run a different approach for your kind of back end B2B approach because you know, a head of customer experience or a chief innovation officer of, at Walmart will not, you know, implement your payment system for all of Walmart because they saw some Instagram ads. With them, you need to build a deep, meaningful relationship, show your expertise, demonstrate that, you, that you're trustworthy, show your track record, all of these things. So that's a different approach. That's more like, you know, sales. That's, for example, where long form videos on LinkedIn and connecting with decision makers directly comes into play. So these are different approaches. And this actually applies to a lot of companies because if you're a B2C consumer company, but you're funded, you always have a B2B aspect to your company, which is to generate investors. Unless obviously you already have a strong network and you know lots of people, but if you don't have that, you need to constantly build new relationships with new investors and VCs and angels who can bring in money for the next investing round so that you can fund your B2C company. So it's kind of an obvious point. Um, I'm just pointing it out because marketing teams need to be aware of these two different aspects because the marketing that you need to apply is very different and the channels that work for these two different approaches are very different. There's actually another B2B aspect to every company which is hiring. You can be the, you know, lowest cost B2C e-commerce dropshipping business. If you want to scale, you need to hire people and hiring people is basically sales. Like you need to build relationships with people, get them into their funnel 
These are, you know, high prices that you end up paying. And these are big life decisions for the people involved, right? This is not an impulse decision to say, I'm going to go with this company. Like you need to really, you know, massage and build trust and build a relationship and build rapport and find alignment on culture and fit. And that applies to any company when you want to hire. So for, for every company, there's a B2B aspect and you need to serve that differently. Chapter six, the seven hour rule. One of my favorite marketing concepts is the seven hour rule. And the seven hour rule basically just says that big decisions take seven hours. So if you, for example, want to buy a car, it takes you on average seven hours to make that decision before you're able to pull a trigger. That seven hour includes, you know, maybe going to the dealership and talking to the dealer, looking at the car, maybe driving to second and third dealership, doing the same thing. But that time also includes, you know, doing research online, watching a YouTube video about your car and what it does and, and, you know, thinking about it while you sip coffee and imagine yourself sitting in that car, all of these things add up to the seven hours. And so this applies to B2B sales where you're selling, you know, 30,000, $50,000, solutions to your prospects, right? These are big decisions. Same applies here. It takes people on average seven hours before your prospects can make the buying decision and say, all right, we're going to go with, with you guys. What that means in traditional sales is that one, it's very time intensive because these seven hours that the prospect needs to spend with you are the same seven hours that you and your salespeople need to spend with that prospect in discovery calls and demo calls and feedback meetings and discussing the thing and maybe inviting them out for dinner and going golfing with them. So that's a lot of salary that you're investing into that deal. And two, it means that it's stretched out over a very long time because obviously no prospect will sit down one day and have a seven hour session with you, get it out all in one day and then buy. No, this accumulation of these different times and in interaction will spread out over a long period of time because people's lives are busy and your salespeople's lives are busy. So not only do your, does your prospect needs to find the seven hours, you know, spread out between the already busy schedule to research you and educate themselves about you, but it needs to align with your salesperson's schedule so that they can align on this time to have this demo call for an hour. And then two weeks later, they need to find another time to get the other decision makers in and have a feedback call or whatever it's going to be. So it's time intensive and it stretches out over a long time. And that's where content comes in, right? And that's the reason why we create content. And that's the reason why we create content for customers because it, it automates and it scales this thing, right? Because not all of these things that your prospect needs to learn about you and your solution and your company and how it works needs to be explained by you in person directly to them. This can be explained in a video that you produce that explains your product. And you have another video that explains how it works. And you have a couple blog posts that go into your, your company and how it was created. And then you have, you know, maybe some YouTube videos out there where you talk about other things about your product and your pricing. And now that does two things. One, it's less time intensive because you can create this video once, put it up on LinkedIn, put it up on YouTube, put it up on your website. And now dozens and hundreds of prospects can all watch that same video. So you're multiplying yourself and two, it condenses the, the length of the sales cycle because obviously they will still not, you know, just binge what seven hours 
of your videos on your website and then buy the same day, they still need to accumulate it over time, but at least they can do it on their own time. They don't need to wait until their schedule aligns with one of your salespeople's schedules. But you know, when it's 6 PM and they're after work, they can sit down and watch two or three of these videos. And then when they're commuting in the, in the train, they can, you know, listen to one of your podcasts and do it in their own time. So it, it shortens the whole period in which people need to accumulate this time. Chapter seven, how to leverage your network on LinkedIn. So a lot of founders, once they've been in business for some time, usually have a pretty strong network, right? People that they've worked with before, partners, business friends, other founders, maybe investors, advisors, all kinds of people that they've interacted with over the years. Um, these sometimes add up to hundreds, maybe thousands of people. And oftentimes they're connected with these people on LinkedIn, but they're just stale, right? They're, they're connected. That's fun. Cool. If you're starting a new company, a new venture, or even just trying to expand your current company and, you know, do more things, one way to leverage this net network is to just communicate with them what you're up to, right? To create content and posts and videos about updates on, on what you're up to, new things that you're working on, this new funding round that you just closed, this new feature that you're rolling out, this new customer that you just acquired uh, or won, this new partner, you know, new people that you're hiring, showcasing the growth, you know, showing the progression of the product and, and new features that you're rolling out. And then posting these things to LinkedIn, which is where most founders have this network, right? Where they're connected with these, with these acquaintances. And then the goal is to create shareable content, right? Content that these people who know you, who might not be customers for yours, right? Maybe they're investors, maybe they're advisors, maybe they're other founders working in different industry. They're not people who might buy from you to become customers from you, but they probably know people who do. Right. And because they know you and they have a relationship with you and because you created content that explains your progression and what you're working on, that's easily shareable where they can just grab the link and send it to someone where they're like, oh, yeah, right. I know this. And they're working on this and this really applies to this. Let me just send them this video. You leverage your network to get the word, word out. Um, and because it's you, the founder in the video, right, because a lot of companies do this but they don't do it through the perspective of the founder, right? They have some content writer at their, at their company, write a blog post, uh, about, you know, their new offices or their new features or their new product or their new offices or their new funding round. And then they share the blog post that's like written by anonymous, right? By the company. Um, and I'm sorry to tell you, but your business friends, your fellow founders, they will not share that blog post most of the time because they don't have a connection to this anonymous company blog post, but they have a connection to you. So if you talk about the exact same thing, the funding round, the offices, the new features, the new hires, whatever it is, but it's you personally in the video talking about these things, that's a different story because they have a relationship with you. They like you. Maybe you've done some things with them. Maybe you've done business together. That's something that they much rather share because now they can also say, I've worked with this person. I know this guy. I've invested in this company. I've been in, I used to be his employee, you know, 
10 years back or whatever the story is, and then share it with whoever this would be relevant to who they have in the network, right? And so that way you don't, you don't just have your network, you have the network of your network and you get the word out, right? In a way that's shareable where people can either easily just grab the link and forward it or send an email or send a Slack message or send an iMessage and be like, yo, check this out, three minute video. They're working on something that I think might be relevant to you. So most founders have this network, right? You have these people on LinkedIn, you're just not leveraging them. They're just stale sitting there. Chapter eight, how videos help prove the value of your offer. So one of the problems that many companies run into and, and we run into is that they have to explain the value of what they're doing in the first place to prospects. So I had this conversation with the founder CEO of a marketing agency the other day. And he told me that every single time they're basically an outsourced marketing department. So sales led organizations come to them for them to basically take on the whole marketing of, of their, their company. And on almost every conversation with a prospect, he needs to explain to them what's the point of marketing. Why do marketing in the first place? Why should we be doing this thing? Not only that, once the customer is onboarded and they're trying to retain them, he, he needs to keep telling them, like, what, why are we doing marketing? And so if you run into this situation where you need to explain to prospects constantly what is even the value of your offer in the first place, which is the justified question from a prospect's perspective, of course they want to know, like, what's the value of this thing that we're doing? Why should I pay you money? Why should we do marketing? Why should we do content? Why should we have a new website? You know, why should we, you know, do any of these things that you're recommending me to do? They, they need to see the value to spend money with you. But why have this conversation with every single prospect one-on-one -on -one every single time? Why not put out content that explains these things, put them in places where prospects can see them, whether that is your website, whether that is your YouTube channel, whether that is your LinkedIn, whether that is in your sales material, right? Your two-pager, whether that is, you know, in your outbound sequences, wherever you need to put it so that your prospects can consume them. But don't explain it one-on-one -on -one every time to, to every prospects. Explain in that content why you're doing this stuff you know, how it works, what's the value, how long does it take to get results, all of these questions that they want to know justifiably. And then what will happen is that you'll have fewer conversations. And I had these conversations recently because we started doing some cold email. So I started having some demos with people who didn't know us. And so I was surprised by the amount of conversations I had with people who were just like, content, why, why should I do this? Like, I don't, you know, we're not doing content like, I, and we're doing fine, which is true. And it's a justified question. The only thing is, those are not the people that we want to talk to. We want to talk to those people who are like, yes, we need content. We need video. This is important. This is how marketing works in the 21st century. We need to find a solution to figure this out now. And those are the people to come to us because those are much shorter sales cycles. Because these people are already problem aware, they're already solution aware, and now they're looking for the right provider who can do this thing that they're looking to do. So by 
having it prominently placed, again, your website, your LinkedIn, your YouTube channel, wherever, of how your mechanism works, what's the value of your product or service, what are the expectations, how long does it take to get results, what are the re results that people can expect, what are your benchmarks. Then you have fewer conversations, but you have them with people who already believe in the value of what you're doing. And you don't explain yourself on every single sales call of why are you doing this thing in the first place. 